The Last Breakfast, a short story from Overland to the World by Walter Baum. One. In a darkened corner of the Oliver Twist breakfast room, Eleanor Rosano sat detached from the others. She sketched on the back side of a paper placemat a pencil portrait of a man, a fellow pilgrim on the tour. This man was seated at the middle of a long breakfast table with the warm mug against her cheek. Eleanor didn't like what she was drawing. His smile was all wrong. She pulled a pink baby blanket she had knitted years ago around her shoulders. The vent above her was cold. She heard only scraps of conversation from the men around the table. The hotel was the Charles Dickens Inn and Lancaster Gate, London. Then she thought about Dominic. Suddenly she tasted her husband in her tea. She forgot about the talk, this man and the doodle, smelling instead the remains of the hazelnut blend on the morning that her husband died. Without a nod from St. Joseph, Dominic had died of a heart attack at work. After all, the patriarch of the Holy Family had died with Mary and Jesus close to him, and at least Joseph had a son for his own. Now the house was kept like Dominic's last morning. Four months after Dom's death, his coffee mug remained unwashed with the sip stains. The Roman documentary stayed circled in the TV guide, and the travel magazines still waited by the toilet. Did the chill from above come from realizing how ridiculous it was for her getting upset for her husband's pile on the bedroom chair? His clothes were now sealed in a large box in the bedroom because she said she couldn't carry them to Goodwill. A few clothes she did keep, the shirt from his wedding day, ratty old boxers, and his infamous red plaid pajama bottoms full of holes that she stuffed behind her pillow. It helped raise her head. She swore she could still smell him. She would never wash those priceless artifacts. What she had once called embarrassing relics were not poor, just buy new clothes. She only washed the sheets in the same detergent as always. Some things needed to stay the same. To remember the day Dom died, each Friday, she cooked for herself their last breakfast. Scrambled eggs, done well, almost brown, turkey sausage, orange juice with no pulp, the expensive fresh squeeze kind because they deserved it, and an English muffin, again, done well, but lightly brown with marmalade jelly. After two weeks, she decided to no longer set a place setting for him. It was strange to see the morning sun no longer silhouette her amazing husband, a man who loved her but struggled with his faith, and for not passing along his name and his genes to the next generation. He blamed himself for his lack of manliness and potency and joked that he should have been a priest or a eunuch. That tore her apart. Her hands soothing him, her lips touching his neck and his ear and his lips would usually alleviate the shame and the loss of what they both wanted so much. 
We may not have children, he said many times, maybe even on that last morning at breakfast. But we have each other, Eleanor, and for that, I'm blessed. Hearing those still at the breakfast table at the Charles Dickens Inn, Eleanor seemed to know what the others didn't, that death huddled in the corner like a child. Some talked such nonsense, and such a waste of one's precious time. Eleanor really only knew two on the tour, the man she was drawing, Michael Fadden, and Marion Felson. They were all from the same Catholic church in South Jersey, Our Lady of Snows. There were too many passengers or pilgrims. Who's important? Was she important to know? She didn't know yet. Perhaps if she only selected a few people for the company, that would be enough. Never one to start a conversation, always going along with her husband, Eleanor would smile and answer politely, praying the answer would not start another, hoping to appear friendly and not stupid. Dom used to complain, you open one door to Eleanor and you discover ten doors to Eleanor, but you only open the door to me. Like her desire to do more than a doodle, she had left doors closed to her husband too. Coming on this tour was one door that opened. Her friend, Marion Felson, heavy set and short, perhaps 5'3", had a full face, pasty dough white with hints of rouge and a mound of short black curly hair. Her nicest feature, hidden under heavy dark eyebrows, was her oval black eyes. Eleanor swiped a glob of white frosting from Marion's mouth, silencing for a moment Marion's worries about her precious babies, her cats. Earlier that morning, entering the bistro, Michael Fadden had insisted that Eleanor and Marion join them next time at the pub to hear one of the tour passengers play her banjo. Her name was Molly Reynolds. I don't want to stay out too late, Marion said. You're on vacation, said Michael Fadden, and I'm sure there's a song in your heart that's aching to get out. Eleanor didn't want to hear the song that was trying to get out, even though Patsy Cline's crazy reminded her of when Dom pulled the car over and they danced by the side of the road. Eleanor told Marion that travel would open her eyes. It was Eleanor who pleaded with Marion to join her. She didn't want to pay the single room supplement but then Michael Fadden broke in and said that you didn't need to travel to open one's eyes. Well, it's better than sitting alone in a house in Cherry Hill, Eleanor replied. I just hope my cats are fine, Marion said. Michael Fadden's back faced the portrait of the single gentleman. Black and white caricatures of characters from the novels of Charles Dickens lined the yellow walls of the bistro. Sam Weller, Miss Haversham, Clara Peggotty, Charles Darnay. Michael Fadden, meanwhile, chattered as always, his gentle voice calming the room. Most who remained seated were men. Was Michael Fadden aware of the work she was doing? Looking for inspiration, she studied the sketches on the walls, familiar with only Miss Haversham, the crazed and jilted bride from Great Expectations. Since high school, Haversham had always haunted her, was Eleanor now a miss too? Was she going crazy? Eleanor had met Michael Fadden during bereavement therapy. This enigma, as she labeled him, 
would glance at Eleanor more often than he would on the distant and cold grief counselor. Such glances made her uncomfortable. Eleanor had lost her husband, and Michael had lost two parents, a terrier, a younger brother, his career, and his faith, all within a year. Marion, too, sometimes joined the therapy sessions when she lost a cat. She had 12, so she was familiar with loss. When not glancing at Eleanor, Michael Fadden would rock back in the rusty aluminum chair, tilt back his head, his long brown hair reaching down his lower back, and stare at the pale, water-stained drop ceiling. Was she examining him just as much? Did he sense her eye? She he commanded the group therapy room, too. The laughter, however, alleviated the pain and kept the stains from springing forth fangs from the ceiling. Losing one's faith, after all, is one thing, but for a priest, leaving the church must be something totally different. What would Dom think of me associating this casually with a former priest? I just couldn't play the role anymore, Michael confessed to Eleanor. This was months ago, in the dead of winter. They were the last therapy patients in the darkening parking lot in South Jersey. Marion was waiting in the Nissan as the car heated up. Marion hung twice, wondering what was keeping Eleanor so long. Light snow started falling and swirling, the snow constantly shape-shifting on the lot. He talked briefly about his awakening from his long, dark night of the soul. I may have retired my vest... Well, no, I actually buried my vestments and my collar, Michael Fadden said. Dramatic. Yeah, I know. But I still needed to belong to something familiar. Someday, perhaps, I will tell you more about how I wrestled with my decision, and then I don't know, when I woke one day, as I said, I had another life. A second life I wanted to live, and not in isolation or in denial about my truth. Michael Fadden shook his head when Eleanor asked if Father Thomas, the progressive pastor at their large church, knew of his former profession. No one knows around here except you, Eleanor, he whispered, as if the bats above the broken lights were either angels or minions. Ever wonder why I crack jokes during the group talks? One cannot actually leave the priesthood, right? She wondered. In the basement, Whenever she saw him, Eleanor had blushed over the stale powdered donuts and tepid Lipton tea that always tasted, tasted like coffee. The urn having once been used for Maxwell House. An urn, she laughed mordantly. The same word for ash and for coffee. The lack of windows kept anyone from seeing the color shifting on her face. One night they lingered, as usual, talking in the darkened hallway. Why me? Eleanor asked. Why tell me? Without hesitation, he said he just simply liked her a lot. And for some widows, especially a Catholic widow, dating a non-practicing agnostic priest may not go over too well in the single scene. Can you imagine me on Christian Mingle? Who really wants to kiss a priest? On the cheek, sure, but you know what I mean, right? Michael Fadden lived modestly, renting a room by a lake, working at a local craft brewery, and in his rental wood shop, making things, selling them on Etsy. He thought about teaching.
Two weeks after your husband's funeral, Eleanor, you were back, he said. But you were wearing jeans. Yeah, yeah, jeans in church. You didn't have your hair tied in a tight bun. I noticed that right away. So you were watching me this all this time. Whatever he replied sounded genuine and flattering. Slightly creepy, yes, but his eye was right. Her husband never liked her to wear jeans. Why? Do reasons even matter when he just felt it was rather unfeminine? And he just preferred his wife, his beautiful wife, to be a, to be a lady. Dominic was an electrician and did well, very well. It was his own business. Every night, he still prayed the rosary and even went to daily mass at times for God to grant him a child. Boy or girl, it didn't matter. He was not on board with adoption. It was one point of contention between the two. But holding each other in bed each night was its own reward and heaven and comfort against the darkness. Now, Eleanor was in that bed alone, cold, lonely, still smelling his cologne on the pillows and reaching out into the darkness to catch his jokes, his whispers, his sighs during lovemaking, and Eddie Adams that remained. After so many years of marriage, breathing was easier with two, but no one mentions the struggle when reduced by half. Two. It was the first full day of the Overland to the World Tour. The same younger woman at Our Lady of Snows organized the trip each year. What was, what was her name? Ava. Yeah, Ava Hargrove. Her husband, or the guy who was sometimes seen with her at church, rarely joined her. She always requested the same tour director, too. The polished and urbane Jeffrey Snow. That's what was heard, anyway, because he was the best in the business. Every year, Eleanor had pleaded with Dom to join the church trip, reinforcing the nights in Italy and a chance to visit the Vatican. It was a 14-day trip, England, France, Switzerland, and then Italy. When Dom wanted to rest on his few days off, that meant the same Jersey beach rental in Belmar, New Jersey. He loved traveling, but traveling in travel magazines. As soon as Dominic died, Eleanor placed a deposit for the summer whirlwind tour of Europe. If it's Belgium, they say, it must be Tuesday. The dashing British host, Jeffrey Snow, was, again, comforting Eleanor's traveling companion about leaving her cats alone. Jeffrey could have been cast as the romantic lead in any British rom-com, like Dear Mr. Darcy. Marion Felson was 67. By the entrance of the bistro, Jeffrey patted Marion on the back. Her tears must have stained Jeffrey's dashing blue blazer. Jeffrey had already called the United States because Marion worried that her cats would starve because the cat sitter had the wrong house key. But the cats were fine. Marion sat with her big black bag on her lap and fiddled with the black ribbon in her pants pocket. Just wait until you see Westminster Abbey, Jeffrey Snow told her. It concentrates the mind's eye inward after drawing it heavenward. Michael Fadden said that Jeffrey was quite the Renaissance man, complimenting him on his tenor voice at the pub the previous night with the banjo music. I did take choir and dance in school, Jeffrey said. 
not so much for the art, but to be around the ladies. The odds were always in my favor. The conversation around the table of mostly men now somehow came up about wanting to know what every woman desires. Michael Fadden said that very question comes from the wife of Bath's tale from the Canterbury Tales. Now, who's the Renaissance man here, right? Jeffrey replied. Michael Fadden asked if he would be so bold as to venture a guess. I was wondering if I could perhaps overhear a few responses. Well, that would help me connect a few dots, Jeffrey said, as well as I, <laughs> well, I haven't been so good at the art of women. Well, right. I've actually enjoyed this tete-a-tete, but we do have a full day of the great imperial city, the crossroads of the world. Uh, we leave in ten minutes, uh, group uh, chop-chop and all that. What did every woman want? What does every woman want? Is there such a question? Why did she feel so dumb, Eleanor thought, in the company of men? Arrivederci, signore. Liverdo presto, Jeffrey said. Dom used to say, Arrivederci, il mio amore, when he left for work. He was still whispering it to her. She needed him to whisper something else, a suggestion, an okay. But an okay for what? To move on? Move on to what? She closed her eyes and talked to Dom in her head, asking, What should I do now, my love? Michael Fadden told Eleanor, after a bereavement meeting, could you ever think about having dessert with me at the Harrison House Diner? Eleanor agreed. That, and coming on this tour, was opening a new door in a new mansion. The Italian Michael Fadden spoke sounded beautiful. He was from New York, well, Brooklyn, but not the slightest accent. The Jesuits took care of that, he said, among other things. He promised to teach her a few Italian words, but claimed that a smile and polite hand gestures work well, too. Wait until you experience Italy, he said, beaming. How could this former priest smell of musk and spice and vanilla, such worldly scents, no incense or holy water or oil at all? Imagine Michael Fadden behind the altar. What were his homilies like? <laughs> so lively and full of stories and anecdotes. He harbored a deep and melodious voice, like a podcaster or one of the alluring audible book narrators. Such husky voices lulled her to sleep during frequent bouts of insomnia. Three, Dom was right. He would have hated some military timetable parading him around. Eleanor also suspected Michael signed up when he saw her name on the list in the rectory. This should be interesting, she thought. I hope my cats are fine, Marion said. I can't have any more die. Eleanor placed her arm around Marion. She whispered that her cats were so lucky to have someone who cared for them so much. Michael Fadden was the last passenger in the Oliver Twist Bistro. A second delicious scone needed negotiation. If this was his last breakfast, after all, he wanted to savor the last crumb of the scone. Michael Fadden wanted to show Eleanor the famous serpentine in Hyde Park. Maybe even hire a boat for rowing or buy some art supplies, you know, for you, Eleanor. As Eleanor walked toward a tear-stained Marion, she turned for Michael 
and spotted him picking up her placemat sketch. She flushed. In her fantasies, she had totally forgotten the sketch. The widest smile appeared on Fadden's face, as if the sun just struck from some stained glass. Am I really that handsome? What could she say? Not the truth, of course, and how could she possibly flirt with anyone at 52 and with a former priest? He pocketed the placemat as a souvenir after asking politely if he could keep it. Are you aware, Eleanor, of how gifted you are? Four. As the motor coach crossed Vauxhall Bridge, Jeffrey Snow claimed the London Eye was the largest observation wheel in the world. On the allotted 20 clear days per year, he said, one could see Windsor Castle to Thames Barrier. To the north of the river, a shadow descended over Big Ben. Along the Thames, the coach turned left on the Albert Embankment. Eleanor urged Marion to ride, but Marion was afraid of heights. As Eleanor gazed at the London Eye, an enormous Ferris wheel, Eleanor recalled Dom's first kiss in Ocean City, New Jersey, on a Ferris wheel, her pink shawl still around her, and how the car rocked, but his hand and his voice comforted her. His hand found its way to her, and she shuddered and surrendered to his touch. She missed being touched. She missed having no one around the house. No one ever left underwear on the recliner. Later, after that wonderful day in Ocean City, the cotton candy stuck to his beard. They made love, trying for the baby. Dominic never wanted to take this tour, Eleanor said to Marion. I even begged to get passports ten years ago, but they sat in our drawer. Why wouldn't an Italian man want to see Italy? I never had a boyfriend, Marion said. She looked at her new black sneakers bought for the trip. I kissed a boy once, and he said my lips tasted like pond scum. Now, how would he know what pond scum tasted like? Marion said she didn't know, but she was probably better off with her cats and her piano and taking care of her father or on the tips of a waitress. She worked at the same diner for 40 years. In many ways, Marion was an institution there. Eleanor remembered Monet's various hues of the Houses of Parliament from the history of art book she bought years ago. At the kitchen table, when young, her greatest joy was drawing picture books. Jeffrey said light is turned on the top of Clock Tower whenever Parliament was in session, which everyone refers to as Big Ben. Technically, he said, Big Ben is simply the name of the largest bell in the tower. Marion stared out the window, looking away. I'm having trouble following him with his accent and his fancy words. Everything he says gets all squished together. It terrified Marion. Away from the familiar, the cats and the piano and the rhododendron and the spider plants. During their flight, Marion complained about work and low tips and the food and beverage manager, the competitive new waitress, and how her nerves made her pour coffee on people. As they were recrossing the Thames, Jeffrey recited, Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in his majesty. As the coach approached Westminster Abbey, Jeffrey said that after their visit, the balance of the afternoon was free. In the evening, they would attend a West End performance of The Constant Wife by M. Somerset Maugham at the Apollo. It was about a wife who wants to be constant, faithful, 
but her husband isn't, and everyone knows, and then this guy from Japan returns home, and the constant wife drifts. Let's dress up tonight, Eleanor said. Maybe we'll get new dresses on Oxford Street. Oh, Eleanor, call me Ellie. You're too old to be called Ellie, Marion said. No, really, we'll be two American ladies dressed for a fine night on the town. Oh, I don't want to stay out too late. And I'm too tired of staying inside. Maybe Michael Fadden can take me. Five. With the voices in Westminster Abbey evaporating into the vast expense, Eleanor whispered prayers to her husband. She stood next to the red velvet framed gravesite of the unknown soldier. The beautiful stained glass, illuminated by the bright day, reminded her of how her husband complained that new Catholic churches didn't have stained glass or any beautiful statues to give you a sense of God on earth. The Abbey tour guide, Julia, raised her yellow flag. Marion said, I'm getting too old for this. You can sit down. Don't feel like you have to do everything. If I can't walk, I can't work, Marion complained, and I need to work. I'm a couple years away from Social Security. I'm not lucky like you. Julia moved her way through the group as the word lucky seeped its way to the pockets without holes of such financial security. Eleanor took this security for granted. If you turn around, you will see the delightful west window, Julia said. It was designed by Sir James Thornhill and William Price in 1735, which is about 40 years earlier than your Declaration of Independence. If you will look to the left, take a seat and relax, Mar, Eleanor said. I'll come back to get you. No, no, I'll be okay. Enjoying the Abbey, ladies? Jeffrey Snow asked. Michael Fadden was with him. I'm having trouble hearing, Marion mumbled. No one seemed to hear her. She sat on the wooden pew in the south transept while Eleanor stood next to her, her hand on her shoulder, her eyes marveling at the marble-grooved ionic column as thick as a redwood tree. Julia said the design of the abbey was meant to draw the eye heavenward. Eleanor saw the ribs of heaven perfectly structured. Julia's yellow flag rose toward the north transept to see St. Edward the Confessor's Chapel the founder of Westminster. Living is what should matter. That's what's so dear, and Marion wasn't living. She would just sit, wait, and play, and that black ribbon again. Having time alone was a selfish joy, though, she thought. In the sanctuary, the heart of the abbey, Eleanor stared at the high altar depicting the mosaic of the Last Supper. My Last Supper with Dominic, she thought, it's baked turkey with mashed potatoes. The shrine was a pilgrimage site, according to Julia, for many of the weak and sick who came to be cured. Michael Fadden approached Eleanor. I wonder what our society would be like if, uh, and this was a thought echoed by Joseph Campbell, Michael Fadden inserted, seemingly inspired by everyone looking up, that instead of skyscrapers, cathedrals were still our tallest buildings. You see, commerce is our god now. They ascended the stairs from the ambulatory. What would be the significance of Mother Mary if she never bore Jesus? What would be the meaning in her life? After only who knows how much time alone standing there, Eleanor felt the tug on her paisley peasant skirt. It was one of the two daughters from a widowed mother on the trip. Eleanor suddenly recalled her name, Sarah. She asked if she was all right. Eleanor said yes. Where's your husband? the youngest daughter said. With God, my dear. 
Who takes care of you? I take care of myself, dear, Eleanor said, and I hope you can too. Us women need to stick together, you know, and maybe even create a new tribe of Amazonian woman warriors. <laughs> Sarah laughed. She said the words Amazonian woman warriors over and over like a mantra. I don't know what that means, she said, but being a woman warrior sounds fun. Can I fight against the boys at school? That's a question for your mother, Eleanor said. Eleanor and Sarah stood before the beautiful bronze gates at the Lady Chapel. Julia commented on the lovely vaulted roof, so delicate and intricate that it was completed in 1519 in the great Tudor style. Eleanor thought it looked like lace. Light flooded through the front windows that illuminated, for a moment, the floating particles. The tour guide Julia appeared with her raised yellow flag. How did she get ahead of the group? Well, we'll see the most endearing corner of the abbey to the British people, she said. Poet's Corner. Michael Fadden appeared. Sarah ran toward her mother and older sister. Whenever he went, Eleanor's eyes followed him. She would occupy a square on the floor where he stood, close her eyes, and breathe him in. She felt her body grow warm. She tightened her arms around her bosom and closed her arms like a vice, feeling the pleasure of what she so missed. Michael Fadden gave Eleanor too much distance on this trip, she thought. Perhaps he's protecting me, giving me time to think. Such a gentleman. But I want him to kiss me. I want to touch those hands. Even those hands hardened by all the woodwork he does. She saw his pictures on Etsy of his work and almost bought a few pieces under assumed name. Would Dom want her living alone? There is freedom in death, after all. But freedom to life, too. The light that poured through the double semicircle windows provided excellent contrast. The image would have to linger in order to put it down on paper. And more than a paper placemat. Was this all a betrayal to Dominic? The warmth of the chapel forced her to take off the baby blanket. Standing alone made her consider remarrying. She never kissed another man romantically, let alone. Uh, her life was so enmeshed in his that she never could disengage herself, even from his memory. She whispered the line, Till death do us part. At church, there must have been single, older gentlemen, but she didn't mix too well because the social interactions seemed too clicky. The church bulletin sometimes posted single gatherings, but she was not, until now, one to go alone or to mingle. Now, a handsome, intelligent, and a single man commented on her doodles. Could she be reborn? In spite of loving me, Dom never asked what I wanted outside of deciding on restaurants and wallpaper, that kind of stuff. And What would I tell Jeffrey if he asked again what every woman wanted? Was there an answer? Did women know what they really wanted? If he asked when she was 17, her answer would be to have a good husband. And her prayer was answered. If he asked it when she was 21 or 20 years after that, she would have said children. If he asked the question when she was 45, with her prayers unanswered, she would say to remain a devoted wife. But now the answer to the question was unclear. The normal progression uprooted. Was not she going to choose to live by watching TV alone, nor looking through photo albums, or making oblig obligatory runs to church every week without swallowing? Bringing Marion on the trip, trying to open Marion's eyes to life, may have been a good excuse to justify 
the simply selfish reason of not wanting to do it alone, and there being no one else. Marion was not adventuresome. Dom wasn't either. Marion was happier with her cats than touring through Europe. It was a lack of foresight in using Marion as a crutch. Now, instead of leaning on her, she would have to carry her for the rest of the 13 days. Ah, it'll be all right. Eleanor raced to catch up with the tour. Catching sight of Marion brought her back to reality. Would Marion even make it to Paris? In Poet's Corner, Eleanor found an empty spot next to Jeffrey Snow. The lady who organized the trip, Ava Hargrove, was Jeffrey's constant companion, or leech. She wasn't sure yet. Ava seemed annoyed that Eleanor was so close to Jeffrey, but proximity with smart people equaled greater access to knowledge. Eleanor read the inscription on the T.S. Eliot Memorial. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Even though she couldn't interpret, yet that secret knowledge of that line, and she repeated the line, and it made her shiver. Jeffrey spotted Eleanor and repeated his question from breakfast, that question from the wife of Bath. He said he has heard that women want the right to choose. Another pastor, Molly Reynolds, the banjo player, said something to the effect that women be given real choices, not choices to be everything at once without the option of saying no, or at least not right now. Another declared self-determination. So what did she think? Michael Fadden, who had just arrived from a solo wander around the Abbey, also seemed eager to hear. I don't know about that, Mr. Snow, Eleanor admitted. I would say that the simplest answer is to ask. It varies from woman to woman. Yes, one does not apply to the whole, Jeffrey said. Logic, brilliant. And keep asking, Eleanor said. It'll change. Or it may change. Just listen. That's brilliant, Jeffrey exclaimed. Listening. I gotta try that. Michael Fadden placed his hand gently on her shoulder. She shivered. The small group formed a semicircle ring that stood apart from the larger group. Julia officially ended the tour. Eleanor asked Michael Fadden where he had gone when they were in the sanctuary. I wanted to leave you in prayer, he replied. How did you know I was praying? Eleanor asked him. The way you looked at the windows. Eleanor fell silent, thinking of him as yet another lovely man in the world. Could there be more than one? Eleanor swept her arm around the room, I guess you have read most of these authors. A single gentleman has so much time on his hands, he said, but books are only one type of comfort. I'm tired of reading about life. The letter kills, you know. I've been tired of examining life through a 2,000-year-old microscope. He pointed at Eleanor's feet. You're standing on Charles Dickens. Oh, Miss Haversham, Michael Fadden laughed. Would I make a good Dickens character? Dickens didn't really write women too well, Michael Fadden said. Mostly two-dimensional, sentimentalist, so I'm not sure he'd get all your depths and dimensions, but can any man? As long as I'm not Miss Haversham. Where did Marion go? He wondered. He was concerned. Eleanor was concerned too, like a mother. Marion really needed the attention and the reassurance of an anxious child. Eleanor grabbed him by the hand and away from the tour group. She led him back to the privacy of Poet's Corner. The souls of some of Britain's best writers and luminaries were swirling around them as if to sanctify her decision. And by the statue of John Milton, she kissed him. It was soft, 
They looked at each other for the longest time. Her body grew warm. There was still fire there. There were still flames. Such flames would not consume her until she, too, passed into the next world. Then he kissed her longer. He kissed her with his eyes open. That was weird, she thought. But when she asked why, he said, It was as if I was kissing heaven, but my feet are on solid ground, and I just needed to see if you were indeed real. If you were indeed real. Can you take me out to see the constant wife? Eleanor asked. Isn't the whole group going? Yeah, she said, but I want to be with you. I'm going to sit next to you, and I, I want to discuss the play over a drink together, if that's okay. I was a constant wife, you know, until death parted us, and Michael Fadden smiled. Miracles may actually happen, he said, and when you least expect it. So is that a yes? She kissed him. I guess that answers your question, Eleanor. No, Michael, call me Ellie. And me being a former priest? She kissed him again, and again, and again. And after each kiss, she said, I'm sorry, Dom. I'm sorry, Dom. Dom, I'm sorry. But you're still with me. You helped make me. Me. This new feeling? Here's still a part of it. This new, odd trinity. Marion arrived. Her gasp stopped the kisses. How upset would Marion be? Would she feel betrayed, an outsider? Would she bring up Dom again, and again, and again? Eleanor, Eleanor, sighed Marion. Oh no, Eleanor, no! Eleanor just gripped Michael Fadden's hand tighter, as if to hang on for as long as life and will and fate would allow. Life is just too precious to share it alone with memories. I can now share those memories with someone real. Then she told Michael Fadden, On our free afternoon in London, I want to buy an artist's sketchbook and some pencils, and I will draw as I used to as a kid. They would visit Regent's Park, and Marion could sit and feed the pigeons. And he could come too, if he wished. Michael Fadden said, It's great to see you put that talent to good use. How do you know? God just told me, Michael Fadden said. Ironic, I know. And you can't prove me wrong.